0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 22nd of February 2021 and this is episode 196. On today's Dispatches podcast historian and writer Professor Edward G. Lengel talks about his book, Never in Fine Company, The Men of the Great War's Lost Battalion, that investigates the action in which men, four different infantry battalions of the 77th Division of the American Expeditionary Force, were isolated by German forces during the American attack in the Argonne Forest in October 1918. This book was published by Takapo Press in 2018. Ed spoke to me over the interweb from his home in the USA. Ed, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? I've been interested in the Great War all of my life, really. Uh, going, going back to
1: uh, childhood days, uh, from discovering the old American heritage history of World War One that used to be uh, a fixture in every American high school. Uh, of course, most Americans more follow World War II, but it fascinated me anyway. Uh, and when I went to graduate school, I decided to focus on modern uh, British and Irish history and became in particular, that's what I got my PhD in, uh, and became in particular fascinated by the great memoirs. Uh and diaries of World War One, the published ones that were written uh, by great authors like Edmund Blunden, Siegfried Sassoon, uh, great Irish author John Lucy. There's a Devil on the Drum, which is still his favorite. Uh, so that got into got me into a particular interest in focusing the human experience of that war. I'm I'm very fascinated in how war transforms individuals, uh, and the First World War being such an unprecedented type of War, the, the psychological impacts that it creates in those who experience it and then what they do with it. has uh, just interested me. I've now reached a point
0: where I've read several hundred World War One memoirs uh, and in addition to other associated books. So why did you write a book on the so-called Lost Battalion? I've
1: written a book already on the Miz Argonne, the larger Battle of Miss Argonne, which the Lost Battalion owned. And that book was uh, To Conquer Hell in Miz Argonne 19- 18, published back in 2007 and uh the lost battalion was one aspect of that uh, and a very interesting one there have been a couple of minor books about it there was a made for television movie back in 2003 i believe um but i have a personal interest in it as well and that i'm related to one of those who was involved in the rescue of the lost battalion named sergeant york or then corporal uh, and and that brought to me kind of a, a personal perspective and interest and understanding of what was what was involved in this action. And I saw the these four men who take a primary role in the Lost Battalion action as just having such fascinating personal stories that I want to tell.
0: Can you start by telling us who the Lost Battalion were? How many men were there, and what parts of the United States did they come from? The Lost Battalion comes
1: from the 308th Regiment of the 77th Division, and the 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 77th Division was, in its initial formation, made up almost entirely of draftees from greater New York City. It was uh, made up heavily of uh, immigrants, many of them who had just arrived in the country from Central and Eastern Europe. And they were um, they were forged into this division, which was the the first all-draftee division of the United States ever to enter combat. Uh, it entered combat even before the meuse in August of 1918. And the um, the Lost Battalion was led by Major Charles Whittlesey. It was actually a combination of units from a couple of different battalions in the 38th Regiment of about 600, approximately. 600 men, and um, they were, as I said, many of them from Greater New York City. But shortly before this action, they received an influx of, uh, from ironically, from the far west of the United States, who were who were bond boys essentially, who had just been forced into the unit as replaced. So you see this odd combination of men coming from different regions of the United States and very strongly different F backgrounds
0: thrust into action. And so, can you give us some background on the action in which the lost battalion were involved and how they how they became quote lost the
1: 77th division entered into action on the left flank of the Ms. argonne offensive uh, almost entirely well actually fully entirely in the argonne forest which was a very rough terrain uh very dense woods that were strongly defended by the Germans who really understood how to defend that type of terrain. 77th Division was launched into more or less a frontal attack into this forest on September 26, and on the days that followed, kept on repeatedly attacking straight ahead into these woods, uh, making only limited progress. Although surprisingly, these uh, draftees the term never shaky, unlike uh, some other division that were not draft far off to their right. On October 2nd, the um, Charles Whittlesey's command is ordered to assault into the woods yet again. Uh, Whittlesey sees this as a trap based on increasing German resistance that he had seen over the previous days, but nevertheless, he's he's determined to follow his orders. He's not given any option. As he leads the assault into the woods on this particular occasion, the Germans who have shifted their troops around uh, in order to meet attacks from different areas serendipitously have left a gap in their lines uh, through which Whittlesey's command, portions of the First 1st and 2nd Island, 308th Regiment advance. Whittlesey is the only one who is able actually to reach his objective on that day, which is on the far side of a ravine a few miles into the woods. Uh, he takes his objective, settles down, uh, only to find that even though he's been told not to worry about his flanks, that the Germans will be there in order to, pardon me, that the Americans will be there in order to support his flank, finds that, in fact, he has no support either on the right or the left and that Germans have sealed off the, uh, the advance, sealed off his, his unit and surround his
0: men on, in the ravine that very... So what were conditions like in the pocket for the men of the Lost Battalion? You kind of have to go there and walk the ground
1: in order really to see what it's like. It, it has a very powerful impact uh, it, it can be seen now uh, it, uh, the spot where the men were pinned down is as I said on a steeply sloping ridge I'd say roughly a 660 to 65 uh, degree angle uh, sloping up toward a road uh, and above that road the slope continues at an even higher angle uh, toward perhaps 70-75 degrees so it's quite steep and uh, the men are dug in right below this road uh, they have Uh, These are still fairly dense wood. The ground is covered with leaves. There is a stream at the bottom of the ravine through which they can get water, but the Germans have... That stream under observation. So anybody who goes down there uh, is liable to be sniped, picked off by the Germans. They have no food. They they had not eaten the night before either. Uh, Americans who study modern wars kind of get used to the idea of their their troops having plenty of supplies. That was not the case in World War One. Getting supplies to the front was a major problem. Never more so than this case. The the troops had not received any food. They had only what water was in. They had no medical supplies at all uh, aside from a few basic bandages there were no medics with them in the pocket so they didn't they didn't have anybody to to help out when they got wounded and although because of the slope on which they're dug in they're fairly safe from german heavy artillery fire uh, the germans are able to take them under fire from a trench mortar and also attack repeatedly with grenades machine guns and flamethrowers uh, from multiple sides and then also tragically the men come under fire from their own artillery in one episode in a terrible friendly fire incident. So conditions quickly become quite grim. They are uh, they're under constant fire. It's misty it's rather rather cold autumn is beginning starting to to rain at times and pretty soon it just becomes squalid and and miserable for the men a really a terrible place to endure combat
0: so what motivated them to carry on fighting and why didn't they surrender this is a classic case of why
1: men fight. It's something that military historians have been trying to figure out for a long time, as well as, of course, military professionals. Why do, why do men fight? This In this case... you can't say that they're fighting for some kind of great cause or or overarching crusade or concept that they believe in. Uh, They're not fighting out of hatred of the Germans, uh, of the enemy, but they're fighting pretty much for each other. And this is especially ironic, given that these are men who came from such different backgrounds, even those who had grown up in New York City together from different ethnic backgrounds, if they had met before the war they've been more likely to have beaten each other up in a gang fight than to actually help each other out so far as western farm boys is concerned they really have nothing in common work, but they've developed intense camaraderie under fire intense loyal to each other and a desire to help each other out uh, under the most adverse circumstances and uh, their officers men like uh, Charles Whittlesey and Captain George McMurtry uh, and Whittlesey is not a soldier by any means but these uh, certainly not by profession, but these these two officers, as well as other officers, have to provide the glue and
0: offer that kind of leadership by example that fires the men to keep, keep on fighting. And what sort of uh, what was the level of casualties amongst the men of the lost battalion, and how long did they hold out until before they were, were relieved? They had to hold out till early on October eighth, so it's five to six days in the pocket
1: and with over 600 men walking into the pocket only a little over 200 are able to walk out on feet uh, with the rest being all killed or captured uh, or or wounded. Uh, So it's uh, 66% casualties roughly.
0: And how was the action that the Lost Battalion was involved in reported back in the USA in October 1918?
1: It's a, that's a very interesting question. Now, it, it was not, uh, this time in 1918, obviously, it was not like the era of the news reporting day. There, there were no combat correspond in the pocket. There was nobody filming what was going on. There was no media providing updates on what was happening. Nevertheless, when this unit cut off, uh, pretty quickly, the uh, newspaper reporters and journalists who are stationed behind the front became Become aware that something's going on. They flock to American First Army headquarters where General John J. Pershing is located to get news uh, to try to figure out what's happening. They hear that a unit has been cut off is so something that is very frightening to the US Army for the fear of the public relations disaster that it will, will create uh, if an American unit is wiped out. So a number of reporters worked definitely to try to make the, their way to the front. Uh, one of them being Damon Runyon, who is one of the characters in my book. Uh, Damon Runyon is a reporter from New York City uh, who works for uh, William Randolph Hearst, the great newspaper, and who has been particularly interested in the story of the 77th Division, wants to report on the men who were there. He knows many of them. Personal of them are baseball players or boxers or people who are promised city sports. Uh, some of them were uh, gamblers and high rollers or people who had worked streets of the city he had gotten to know. Uh, and so Runyon works his way to the front. Before too long, uh, word reaches uh, the United States that a, that a unit has been cut off. And an editor in the United States cables one of his uh, reporters closer to the front saying Ken lost the town deaths probably where the where the designation came from. Uh, the battalion, of course, never actually lost, and it wasn't really a battalion, but a combination of, uh, of a couple of battalions, uh, but it came to be known in the United States uh, and in Western Europe as the lost battalion, nevertheless. Increasing sense of uh, panic and fascination sets in as the as the pocket to hold out till it's relieved, and then when it is relieved, uh, Damon Runyon, followed by the other reporters who've made their way to the front uh, work their way in to interview the men as uh, they march out of the pocket. They're really stumbling out of the pocket. Uh, but uh, General William Alexander, who commands the division, sits on a, a newsreel camera, being there to film the men as they walk out. So it becomes a really kind of a media station.
0: And so, how did the men of the Lost Battalion deal with their experiences in later life?
1: Each man, of course, deals with it differently. Uh, that's one of the lessons uh, to be learned from, from this war, like it, other wars. It was one of the things that was so fascinating with me and reading these hundreds of World War One wars, is that one can't really generalize and say that, that everybody felt the same way about it. Nevertheless, obviously this was a grueling experience, a very traumatic experience for the men who survived. Um, some of them were able to more or less return back to life as it had been, get on with their life uh, and return to normalcy. For many though, this was something that created what would be called then a shell shock, but now is more widely known and more broadly in post-traumatic stress. Shell shock as it, was, as it was understood then was only identified in its more extreme men who became a physical and mental wrecks because of what they had experienced. But for most of these men, more broadly, uh, nightmares. Uh, anxiety, an inability to resume normal patient with their families, inability to hold down job, descend into uh, alcoholism, and it became for many of them very, very troubling. Now, Charles Whittlesey and George McMurtry, uh, both of them, uh, as well as Alvin York, who's involved in the action that rescued the lost of time, deal with survivor's guilt, deal with post-traumatic stress, they deal with a lot of very Painful memories and experiences, but each one of them deals with it different way. Whittlesey, the commander of the lost battalion, so many of his men come to him asking him for help after the war, and it, it just wears him down. Uh, and he feels such guilt, uh, despite the fact of his impeccable conduct and bon his conduct, uh, that he eventually ends his own life, which is just a tremendous tragedy. George McMartry struggles to return to his family. Eventually, uh, divorces his wife. Uh, his personality has changed a very difficult man to deal with he devotes himself entirely to survivors lost Defined survivors association to kind of give him a sense of ground and purpose he's able to survive it. Just Alvin York uh, also dealing with many painful thoughts and memories he finds hate and solace by devoting all of his uh, all of all of the fame and fortune that he gets from also being a medal of honor a so-called hero by devoting all of that to charity. He's devoting the entire rest of his life to charity. That gives hope. So that just shows how each man can uh, deal with it, uh, cope with it in different ways.
0: And how are the men of the Lost Battalion commemorated today?
1: Until recently, not very much. Uh, There was a burst of publicity right at the end of World War One. Uh, a number of men from the Lost Battalion, including Whittlesey and Marjorie received the Medals of Honors. a lot of reporting in the newspaper, but particularly after Whittlesey's suicide, it disappeared from, from American media. There were a couple of a couple of books that came out in the 1930s uh, about the Lost Battalion, but very little attention beyond that. And it remained largely forgotten until the early 21st the the site of the Lost Battalion's action, as I mentioned earlier, you can go there and see even the the remains of the holes that the men dug for shelter. But until very recently, all that was there was single concrete posts by the road that said Lost Battalion arrow pointing down the road. That was it. It has returned to some degree of prominence in, in the 21st century with uh, the movie that came out earlier in, uh, in about 2003 Rick Schroeder, I think, brought it back to some degree of prominence. Um, and there have been there have been a few books, uh, including mine. But for most Americans it, it's simply one more episode and they're in their military history, you can go to the Smithsonian Institution, and it's uh, in Washington D.C. and its galleries on warfare. I still think it's scandalous that that exhibit does not even mention the Meuse Argonne offensive, which remains to this day the largest and bloodiest battle in the history of the United States. But it does at least have uh, on display a pigeon named Cher Ami, uh, which was uh, one of the pigeons. Uh, carrier pigeons that Whittlesey released uh, in order to seek aid from division uh, during the being entrapped in the pot. Uh, but it's spotty, recognition of what times energy is about.
0: And finally, where can people learn more about your research?
1: I have an author website, which is www. EdwardLengel.com, my last name spelled L E N G E L. And my book, uh, Never in Finer Company, The Men of the Great Wars Lost Battalion, uh, is available on Amazon.com. Uh, also, my earlier book on the Mizargon Argonne, uh, To Conquer Hell, The Muse Argonne 1918, was released in a British edition, so it is available on Amazon.com okay, uh, and some bookstores as well.
0: Edward, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman,